Today's readings from Romans 8, verse 5 to 17. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As we come to consider God's word together, let's pause and pray and ask for his help. Dear Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would feed us. Pray that you would feed us with the living bread. Bread that will endure to eternal life. We pray that you would make us strong in the Lord Jesus. Pray that by your spirit you would teach us all that you have for us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It'd be great there if you've got your Bible to open it back up. Romans chapter 8 and then you can uh, follow along and you can check that what I'm saying is what's there in the scriptures because it's the scriptures that matter. I wonder if I was to ask you a question as we begin to think about this passage this morning, uh, what you would answer. The question is, uh, what is at the heart of being a Christian? What's the very essence of being a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Perhaps there's someone here this morning, you're kind of looking on from the outside. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you would answer that question by uh, the kind of externals that you see Christians doing. So the kind of essence of Christianity is about doing. It's about coming to church It's about trying hard to do good works. It's about saying prayers. Uh, Maybe from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like is the essence of Christianity. But I wonder if you're a Christian this morning, how would you answer that question? 
maybe you'd say something like this, that to be a Christian is to be forgiven. It's gloriously true, isn't it? To be a Christian is to be forgiven. Here's what uh, a man called J.I. Packer uh, writes in answer to that question. He says, you can sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. That's his summary. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, says J.I. Packer. The knowledge of God as your holy father. He goes on to say that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. To be a Christian is to be a child of God. It's to be part of his family. We could say that's the very essence, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And I don't know if you noticed, but all through the reading that we had uh, and into the reading that we will have next week as well, there is a lot of family language. Doug read us uh, an extended bit of Romans. We're just focusing on uh, chapter 12 to 17, but the early verses were there just to give us some context. But particularly in verses 12 to 17, there's a lot of of family language. So Paul starts off uh, verse 12, so then, brothers... He talks about those who are led by the Spirit as being sons of God. He talks about the Christians in Rome as being children of God. He talks about us receiving the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. And it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. He talks about an inheritance. That's a family thing, isn't it? An inheritance. And if you were to read on through uh, uh, verse 18 and onwards, you would see more and more of this family language. And we thought about that last week, that God's purpose in our our salvation is to conform us to the image of of the Son, Jesus Christ. So in verse 29, he talks about Jesus being uh, the, the, the firstborn among many brothers. And as we turn to Romans chapter 8 last week, we, we noted that the whole chapter is all about the security and the assurance that God's children enjoy. Security and assurance. Absolute security. Unshakable assurance. That's what God's children have, that they're safe both now and forever. As we look at verse 12, uh, you can see that verse 12 flows out of what we looked at last week. So Paul says, so then brothers, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. This flows out of what we looked at last week. And last week we saw that our assurance as God's children is absolutely sure. We are absolutely secure because our assurance is rooted in in God himself. So we noted, didn't we, that our assurance is Trinitarian. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together to make us safe forever. And it was particularly the work of the Holy Spirit that is the focus of uh, chapter 8, the first half of chapter 8, how the Spirit works to give us assurance. Someone has said this little phrase, and I think it's helpful. It's regarding our salvation. Regarding our salvation, someone's said, what the Father purposed... 
the Son accomplished and the Spirit is pleased to apply. What the Father purposed, the Son accomplished and the Spirit is pleased to apply. And it was that applicatory work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that's the focus of of the first half of Romans chapter 8. And it's maybe appropriate as we head towards Pentecost Sunday, which is next Sunday, we're thinking about the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our life as, as God's children. And as the Holy Spirit takes of all that is, belongs to Jesus, as he takes of what belongs to Jesus and declares it to us, his children, we saw last week there is no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Not now, not forever. Because Jesus was condemned in our place for our sins. And we also saw last week that as the Spirit comes to live within us, he begins to shape us and change us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He brings the law of God from external to internal. He brings it into our hearts, gives us a a new desire to obey our Father. And we saw what that invasion of the Spirit meant for us as people. In the future, it means life for our mortal bodies. Because we have within us the very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the grave cannot be the last word for the Christian. We have to rise again. We must rise again. We will rise again. Life for our mortal bodies. We also thought about what the invasion of the spirit means for our minds. When Paul uses the word mind, I said last week, he doesn't mean brain or particularly intellect. The mind is the control center. It's our, our inner being. And the Spirit has invaded our mind and and he's taken uh, command in the control center. And his presence there means our lives have become a battlefield. Because within us there is still this sinful flesh. (laughs) But he's hostile to God. But praise God for his powerful spirit that lives within us. And so that means this transformation This changing work of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus doesn't go on in our lives unopposed. There is a conflict. And that's where we're going to begin this morning, thinking about the the conflict that God's children fight. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, your life is a conflict zone. In fact, more than that, your your very person has become a, a conflict zone. And we've already been introduced to the war insides. We see it there in verse 12 and 13. In verse 13, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does Paul mean when he uses this word flesh? Maybe we think, okay, this is kind of the battle is between flesh and spirit. So the flesh is, must be physical and the spirit is obviously spiritual. So the flesh is all things material. So that's not quite right. By flesh, Paul doesn't just mean our, our physical bodies. He doesn't even mean our bodily instincts, our bodily appetites. By flesh, Paul means our, a life lived in independence from God. A life that's driven along by selfish, sinful desires, where that's the only 
motivation. What I want, I do. One commentator says, the flesh is our sin-dominated selves. Remember, Paul said of the Christian, you are no longer in the flesh, you are in the spirit. But while we're no longer in the flesh, the flesh, those sinful desires are still present. And so this war goes on. I'm thinking about my own life and knowing something of this conflict within my own life. I found the following illustration helpful. You may have heard this illustration before. It's a well-used illustration. In the Second World War, uh, there was a point in 1944 uh, when the Allied troops landed on the Normandy beaches. We sometimes call that D-Day. D-Day. And it's thought by many that D-Day was the, the kind of decisive turning point in World War, in World War II. The invasion of the Allied troops marks the decisive intervention. But then battles continued through into 1945. And it wasn't until VE Day 1945 that the war ended and there was, was peace. Even though the decisive act had already taken place in 1944, there were still these skirmishes that went on. Some of those skirmishes were, were violent. An illustration goes like this, that is, we live in this world as God's children. We live, if you will, between a D-Day and a, a V-E-Day. So the decisive turning point has passed. That decisive turning point is the death resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended to the Father and he poured out his spirit upon his people. That's our D-Day. But we look forward to our, our V-E-Day when the fullness of Christ's victory will apply to us and to this world. And as we live between our D-Day and our VE day this conflict still goes on. Although the victory is certain and sure, there's no doubt about that. There are still these skirmishes and conflicts, and we know all about that in our lives. But the truth is now, as those who belong to Jesus, those who are in the Spirit, we are free to fight. We're no longer prisoners of war. We're set free, and we're set free to fight. And so Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds, or we could say misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's violent language, isn't it? Put to death, execute, kill. It reminds us of the words of Jesus, doesn't it? If you want to be my disciple, you must... Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is a radical teaching in a world that increasingly tells us that if it feels good, we must do it. To be authentic is to give expression to all of your desires. To be your true self is to do exactly what you want. And Paul says that we must put to death 
the misdeeds of the body. The old-fashioned word for this is, is mortification. Mortification. As we think about putting to death the misdeeds of the body, waging war on our sin, Paul wants us to ask a question. And the question is this, what has your flesh ever done for you? What has sin ever done for you? All that our flesh has done for us is give us an abundance of shame. It's wreaked havoc upon our relationships. It marches us down the road to death. That's what flesh does. Paul says we have no obligation to the flesh. We owe the flesh nothing. He says, put it to death. And this putting sin to death, it's not a one-off task. We went to a birthday party yesterday. Uh, there was two birthday cakes there because there were two birthdays. And lots of candles to blow out. You know, some candles, you blow them out and the deed's done, isn't it? But then sometimes there's those really annoying candles that get put on that just kind of reignite and reignite and reignite. You blow them out, they light up again. You blow them out, they light up again. Putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh is just like that. John Owen, writer in the 17th century, said this, Indwelling sin always abides whilst we are in this world. Therefore, it is always to be put to death. <laughs> and this putting to death of the misdeeds of the flesh, this mortification of sin, as John Owen called his book, this is something that is absolutely necessary for the Christian. It's absolutely necessary for every Christian. This is the pathway to life. This is not optional. And there are probably, uh, for most of us, areas of weakness that spring to mind as we think about this putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Areas where we know we're particularly prone to stumble. Might be pride, might be impatience, might be anger, might be lust. Areas that we're aware of and in those areas we maybe are aware of the battle. But notice we don't get to pick and choose in which areas we wage war. We must set ourselves to oppose sin on every front. We can't just fight sin when it looks unsightly in our lives, when it causes us problems, when it becomes embarrassing. We must set ourselves against all and, and every sin. We mustn't treat sin like the way I treat weed in my garden. So it's only when the weeds get really big and obvious and unsightly or when they're kind of coming across the path and tripping people up when they're trying to get to the door. That's when we kind of do the weeding. We can't treat the, the conflicts against sin like that. We must always set ourselves against all sin. It's absolutely necessary. It's also possible. That's the glory of this chapter. Putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh is, is possible. That's why God's given us his Holy Spirit. So that we may make progress in 
the Christian life. That doesn't mean that progress will ever be easy. It doesn't mean we just let go and let God and... No, this will take effort. It will be hard. But the glorious reality is because we have the Holy Spirit, we, we can make progress. And it's important that we hear that. Because often our enemy, the devil, the accuser, the one who's full of lies will come along and tell us, this sin is too big. It's been going on too long. It's too deep. It's too much a part of you. You'll never be rid of it. You can never change. You're a fraud. And yet, the Spirit is so much stronger. Remember we said last week, this is the Holy Spirit who, who, who lived within the Lord Jesus, who, who overshadowed Mary at Jesus' birth, who empowered his ministry, who descended on him at his baptism. The one who raised him from the dead. He's intimately acquainted with our humanity and intimately acquainted with our Saviour. He's able to change us. I said before, we're all aware probably of areas in our life where progress has been slow or where the, the fight has been fierce. Probably also all aware of areas of our lives where we have really not done at times what this verse calls us to do. We've not aggressively put sin to death. We've maybe ignored sin. Indulged sin. Tried to make peace with sin. So I want to just give two motivations. Motivations from this passage that I need and you need. Here's the first motivation. Remember the cross. <laughs> Remember the cross. See what your sin cost Jesus. Bring your sin out into the, the glorious splendor of the cross and see it in light of what it cost your Savior. See, as we stand before the cross, we cannot say, I love Jesus. And I love my sin. Because in light of the cross, we see our sin for what it really is. And remember, because of the cross, our old life, our old self, a life lived without God, is done, it's ended. That chapter is closed, never to be reopened. So as you set yourself again, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Remember the cross. Here's another one from John Owen. John Owen says, hatred of sin as sin and a sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. It's no wonder, is it, that, that Paul in chapter seven cries out, O wretched man that I am. Paul, who had such a revelation of, of the cross, of the glory of salvation. Paul, who knew his saviour so well, 
And yet he, even, he, he said that the things that I, I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, those things I, I keep on doing. No wonder as he, he looks at his saviour and he thinks about the cross, he says, oh wretched man that I am. We owe the flesh absolutely nothing. Remember the cross and, and look to the goal as well. Look to the goal. Remember, the goal is that the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what he said in verse 4. The goal is that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the direction that every Christian is heading. And to ignore sin, to indulge sin, it's like, it's like getting on the train to London when you're heading to Edinburgh. It's just... It's, when we do that, it's saying to the Spirit, I know that you've come into my life, I know what you've come into my life to do, but I'm setting myself against it. And yet we do that sometimes, don't we? I do that sometimes. Remember the goal, one day we will bear the image of Jesus fully and perfectly. As we again set ourselves to live out verse 13 of Romans 8, there's one thing also to note that's maybe hidden in our English translations, but that's the word you. You. Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. And in our 21st century mindset, we interpret that you as you, me. This is me as the individual. And that's true. We must take this verse to heart as individuals. But the you is plural. Paul is saying, if you all by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. This, this act of killing sin is something, yes, that we must do as individuals. But it's something that we need each other for. This is one of the reasons why, we, why God has put us together in, in a church family. Sometimes uh, when the battle is fierce, you need a fellow brother or sister, a fellow soldier to come alongside. Sometimes there can be patterns of sin in our life that are are hidden from others. And it's great to come alongside each other and say, brother, sister, can I, can I trust you with this? Can I, I tell you this? Will you help me with this? Will you pray for me with this? And that's a great grace that God uses to help us make progress as, as Christians. So that's the first point. You may be glad to know that's the longest point. <laughs> the conflict God's children fight, and fight we must. The second uh, point is the cry that God's children release. Paul goes on to say, for you did not receive, if we just back up one verse, verse 14, he said, those who are led 
For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Maybe important to notice that the language of the leading of the Spirit here is in, in the context of uh, this fight against sin. Sometimes people say, oh, the Spirit led me to do this, or the Spirit led me to, to say that. But the context of the Spirit's leading here is that the Spirit leads us to, to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. And the Spirit leads all God's children to do that. That doesn't mean we, we do that perfectly. We do that quickly or easily. But the Spirit of God leads all God's children to do that. And then Paul goes on to write, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. We've had this slavery metaphor already in Romans in chapter 6, didn't we? Paul talked about us being slaves to God. Maybe you heard that and thought, I don't really like to think of myself as a slave to God. <laughs> we mustn't misunderstand that metaphor. That talks about God's rule. He's our, he's our master. But it doesn't mean our relationship with God is now somehow slavish and fearful. And he says we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. That's a, a beautiful title for the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The spirit of ad- adoption. We're not just like God's children. We really are actually his children. We who were once so far off when without hope have been adopted into God's family. And maybe the women are here thinking, hold on, it says adopted as sons. I don't want to be a, a son. I'm not a, a son. And so some modern translations will, will, will change that and talk about being adopted as children or, or talk about being adopted as sons and daughters. When you make that change, we miss something of what's communicated in this word sons. Because sons, I don't think it's primarily to do with be male or female. It's about status. In the ancient world, it was the sons who inherited the father's estate. So when Jesus and Paul says that you're adopted as sons, he's talking about inheritance. We all share this glorious status. He's going to go on to talk about our inheritance. In verse... 15 and 16, he talks about the Spirit's witness within us, the Spirit of adoption, who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Children of God. What does it mean for the Spirit to bear witness with our spirit? Does it mean that we hear a kind of audible voice, the Spirit speaking to us, saying, you're God's child. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. I don't think that's what, what Paul is writing about here. When he talks about the spirit bearing witness with our spirit, he's not particularly talking about another voice that we hear. He's talking about the voice that comes from our, our own lips. So you can see that that's connected. Verse 15 and verse 16 are connected. It's as the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children, that from our own lips comes this cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for for dad. 
Abba, Father. And it's by the Spirit that God's children give this cry. Abba, Father. I wonder what, you, what picture you have in your mind when you think of a, a child crying, Abba, Father. Maybe you think of a, a child sitting on his father's knee and looking up lovingly, Abba, Father. Maybe you think of a, a child watching their dad complete a task in all of his strength and skill and, and looking on and in admiration, Abba, Father. Actually, the word uh, cry here is a little bit different to that. This cry is the cry of an overwhelmed child, a troubled child, a desperate child, a needy child. This word cry overwhelmingly in the New Testament is used when people are in distress. It's, you know, the blind man outside Jericho as he hears that Jesus is coming and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So someone says this cry, Abba Father, it's not ecstatic praise. It's not cozy sentimentality. But it's the troubled cry in the heat of battle. And so the picture that should come to our mind when we think of Abba, Father, is a child who stumbles and skins his knees. He's hurt, he looks up, he sees his father and he begins to cry, Abba, Abba, Father. He's in great distress. When the battle with sin is fierce, when we're wounded, when we stumble, from the mouth of God's children comes those words, Father, help. When we're suffering, when we're distressed, when we're overwhelmed with life in this world, the cry goes up, Abba, Father. As we face all the trials of living in a body that's yet to be redeemed. All of the aches and pains. The cry goes up, Abba, Father. That's unique to the Christian. Other people in their sufferings may call out to God. They may shake their fist at God and say, why me? It's only the Christian who cries out, Father. And that's because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And even as we emit this cry, even as we release this cry, even in that moment, the Spirit is conforming us to the image of Jesus. Do you remember these words were on the lips of our Savior as he fell, fell down in the garden, as he was overwhelmed, troubled, Sorrowful even to death. And from his lips came the same cry, Abba, Father. It's when we find that cry within our mouths, it's because we are children of God. 
And then finally, the inheritance the children of God share. Paul goes on to say that even though in the present we may give off this cry of distress, in the future we have a a glorious inheritance. He says, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Back in chapter 4, he talked about the the inheritance that Abraham and his offspring would enjoy. It was the, the world. God promised Abraham his offspring the world. In our magazine, church magazine this week, there's an article uh, on the back page about a man who inherited something like nine billion pounds. For the children of God, we have an inheritance that uh, is beyond all comprehension. We're going to go to a city where the streets are paved with gold, where the most valuable things of this world are simply just kind of road-building materials. We have a glorious inheritance. And the conflict that we face in the present and the cry that comes from our lips in the present, that shows that we are children. (laughs) That shows that we we have this inheritance that glory awaits. And then Paul just adds these verses on the end. In verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul's not introducing some small print here, some kind of small small print conditions that we have to fulfill. Oh yeah, you have this inheritance providing that you suffer. all, All of God's children will suffer because that's often how he does his work in us. It's suffering that produces character. It's character that produces hope. A hope... Hope of glory, and that hope does not disappoint. Do you remember that from chapter 5? This path of conflict and crying is, is a path that every Christian takes. But it's as though God forges glory from suffering. That's what he does. God forges glory from suffering. At the cross, it's as though Christ's glory is is crafted. It's as we look at the cross that we see all of Christ's glory. It's in his sufferings that his glory is revealed. And Paul makes this link in another letter of his between sufferings and glory he says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all sometimes even in this world we get to see a little glimpse of that don't we you'll know as i do people who have who have suffered a lot who in the mystery of god's providence have gone through terrible trials in their life And it's often through those trials that you begin to see something of glory emerging, even in this present world. God forges 
glory from suffering. Paul's going to go on to say in verse 18, we'll look at this next week, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth revealing, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want you to know this. God doesn't waste sufferings. (laughs) Nothing is wasted in in God's economy, in the conflict, in the battle, in the struggle, with the wounds, nothing is wasted. In those times when it feels all you can do is, is cry out, Father, when you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say. Even in those times, nothing is wasted. And as we live in this world, we know, we know that glory awaits. Glory awaits all of God's children. And we're going to think more about that next week. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you how you speak to us. Lord, we pray for each one of us, myself included, that we would not be hearers or preachers of the word, but not doers. Lord, we look to you. We pray that you would continue to give us grace for the fight. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, help us to be vigilant. Thank you that we have your spirit and we pray that you would teach us daily dependence upon him. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to support and care and help one another. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a a greater clarity, a greater vision of the glory that awaits us as God's children. Lord, we pray that you would uh, cut away the ropes that tie us tightly to this world and give us a longing for the world that is to come. We ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.